0: Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, I'm going to talk about my new book, Always in God's Hands Day by Day in the Company of Jonathan Edwards out with Tyndale House. Yes, it's true. It's true though the now-typical format of City of God is to interview someone else, I wanted to take a moment and talk about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is the most significant theologian in American history. There is a lively conversation, of course, among scholars and historians and theologians and exegetes and pastors and lay people about who is the most influential theologian in all of church history. You can make a good case for any number of figures. You could throw Augustine into the mix. You could talk about Athanasius with Trinitarianism. You could say Aquinas if you wanted to isolate his material. You could talk about Calvin or Luther. um, Some other names we could mention as well, of course. And yet I would say, for my humble part, I think that our most consequential, most significant theologian is Jonathan Edwards. And I say that in part not just because Edwards published a bun- bunch of books and, and wrote some really influential material for other theologians, but because Jonathan Edwards, to a degree that is difficult to equal among other theologians, impacted evangelical life on a massive scale. In fact, I think you can say that American evangelicalism, the evangelical movement that develops in many senses in Edwards's day, and then builds steam in the 19th century, even into the current day in the 21st century, is largely shaped by Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has a major influence in setting the tone and the rhythms and the dynamic of American evangelical life. What do I mean? I mean that Edwards is a God-centered theologian, but he is first and foremost a local church-driven thinker. He does not set himself aside in the ivory tower, to do his own deal, to think out what he wants to think for largely his own benefit and the benefit of an intramural group of other scholars. Jonathan Edwards is a pastor, properly understood a pastor theologian, and he understands himself to be crafting theology and treatises that is going to give health and strength and vitality fundamentally to Christians. He is aiming at strengthening other pastors, and then he is aiming at, by extension, strengthening lay people, men and women, to live for God's glory. And so Jonathan Edwards has really a local church focus, at the very least a, a Christian focus in his scholarship and his work. And he shapes a movement then in American terms, in evangelical terms, evangelical Protestant terms, that is largely local church driven. I think a lot of that you can trace back in different ways to Edwards' influence. Not, of course, solely Edwards' influence, but he is a major figure, a cornerstone figure in American history toward that end. In addition... Jonathan Edwards always sought revival. He preached the gospel. He sought the new birth. He desperately wanted people to be awakened under his preaching, not for the exercise of his ego, of course, but for the greater glory of God. So when you're dealing with Edwardsian preaching and writing, of course, we can't hear him today, but we can read so, so many of his sermons, over 1,200 collected by the Yale Jonathan Edwards Center that are available for you at this very moment, should you Google those terms. In, in Edwards's sermons and in his broader writings, he is seeking conversion. That's not to say that he's always pressing the point in applicational terms. He definitely does that. It is to say that Edwards gives the American evangelical movement this revivalist caste Now, I don't mean that in the terms that you might think when I say the term revivalism. For some, revivalism is going to mean essentially a less intellectual, uh, very very impassioned style of preaching that does away with doctrinal instruction and zeros in on extended times of calling people to salvation— Honestly, without in some cases much biblical backing or exegesis, preaching that is basically aimed at only one end, to cause sinners to profess faith here and now in this service. There's obviously overlap between Edwardsian revivalism and the brand of revivalism I just sketched out, but Edwardsian revivalism I do not think should be understood in those chastened, uh, intellectually light Terms. Edwardsian revivalism is a whole-souled, whole-brained, if I can say that term, effort to wake up the sinner to see the terrible slender of Almighty God, the glorious saving beauty of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, and the terrible, horrible plight of the sinner outside of Christ. That, in a tiny little nutshell, is Edwardsian revivalism. In other words, when we're talking about Edwardsian revivalism, we are not talking about a theologically light or a doctrinally chastened version. We are talking instead about a maximally theological enterprise that is primarily transacted through the preaching of the whole counsel of God, every corner of Scripture. Of course, Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is the most famous sermon in extra-biblical history. Uh, That is the most famous sermon preached in history outside of biblical preaching. This sermon is based on Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slip in due time. It's based, in other words, on a single phrase, not even the whole verse from Deuteronomy 32-35. Deuteronomy is a book that many preachers today in the evangelical tradition would not even preach. It's not even in the preaching rotation, not just in a given year, perhaps in a given decade. There are preachers, many good-hearted evangelical preachers who may never be encouraged in their entire career as a preacher to delve into the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Well, today, we're encouraged to think that we shouldn't really preach the Old Testament because it doesn't bear directly on us. I agree that it is not the normative testament or normative covenant. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, is the normative covenant for Christians, and the New Testament, thus, is the testament that bears directly and normatively on the Christian life, and yet confessing what I just said in no way means that the Old Testament is of no value the Old Testament is of immense value. The Old Testament is the very Word of God, as the New Testament is. The Old Testament are, uh, is, is the Scriptures, uh, contains the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Apostle Paul says are God-breathed, are profitable in every way, reproof, rebuke, instruction, correction, training in righteousness, and so on and so forth. That's what Paul is saying of the Old Testament Scriptures. So, when it comes to the book of Deuteronomy, we we need to recognize that this is a book that even if the Deuteronomic law does not apply to us today uh, directly, nonetheless, God still has a tremendous amount to teach us through the counsel, through the law of Deuteronomy, and there is much that we can glean then as Christians, Christ-centered Christians from Deuteronomy. And in returning to this insight, as I pray we would, I pray many preachers would actually preach the Old Testament in 2019 and years to come, as Christ should allow. I pray that we would see that there's actually gold in the Old Testament, even for us today, as Edwards saw. Edwards preached on a single phrase from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, and it was that sermon that God ordained would be, again, the most famous sermon in American history and extra-biblical history more broadly, I am claiming? Do you not see how God chooses to use despised things we hear today that we should unhitch from the Old Testament? That's what Andy Stanley said not long ago. Jonathan Edwards did not unhitch from the Old Testament. Jonathan Edwards preached the Old Testament and preached it as the Word of God and preached it as God-breathed. And profitable. And in preaching about the coming judgment of God on sinners from Deuteronomy 32 35, in reading his sermon in his characteristic flat, monotone voice, Jonathan Edwards received a response that was second to none when he preached it in 1741 in Enfield, a tiny, not even a town, a tiny little village. In tiny Enfield to a small group of people, Jonathan Edwards preached a text from Deuteronomy, and this is the text that continues to reverberate today in our time. Sinners in the hands of an angry God being widely read even in classrooms, public classrooms today, and certainly widely read in the evangelical community today. And it is read, again, because it gives us a big vision of God, It gives us a very vivid portrayal of the sinner's terrible plight outside of Christ, and thus it fits into what I am calling an Edwardsian revivalistic scheme that has very much influenced not just Edwards' own peers and figures he trained, but numerous denominations and groups and Christian circles beyond Edwards' own immediate pulpit and context. We continue, in other words, even in the 21st century in America to be in a context, a church context, where people believe, preachers thankfully believe that they should call sinners to repent and place their faith in the the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we are doing so in human terms because, in part, of the influence of Jonathan Edwards. I'm trying to celebrate. And recover confidence in all of this in the book, Always in God's Hands, that I released just a few weeks ago. But I'm also trying to do it another thing in this text, Always in God's Hands. I'm actually, by use of this phrase, I'll say it again, Always in God's Hands, I'm actually trying to help believers see that the impression they may have received of Jonathan Edwards is not a robust one. In other words, we know Edwards, some of us, as this hellfire preacher and that's how many people who know his name beyond the church would know of him as a hellfire preacher and as i have already said to be very sure jonathan edwards preaches judgment in his pulpit he preaches judgment because he is trying to drive sinners to see that the law cannot save them and that they desperately need the gospel of divine grace to save them but that is not all that jonathan edwards contends for that is certainly not all he teaches and preaches in fact he loves I would say far more in his ministry, to extol the greatness, the excellency, the beauty, the mercy, and the grace of Almighty God. We see that in a 1753 letter that almost no one, and I do mean no one, has read from Edwards to his daughter Esther. In 1753, when he writes his daughter Esther, Jonathan recognizes that his little girl is struggling. She has young children, She's battling an illness, it appears, and things are difficult for this young mother. Things are difficult in 1753, just as things are difficult for many young mothers today in our time. And so Edwards, as a godly father, writes to his daughter to encourage her. Though she is out of his home, he still believes that he is called to, in some form, shepherd his little girl as best he can. And so he does. He writes her a letter in which he says that she is always in God's hands. That's the exact. Phrase he uses. When my editors at Tyndale House saw this little selection uh, of an Edwardsian letter that almost nobody has ever read, they suggested to me, this was about two years ago, that that make that form the title of this book of devotions that I was slated to write uh, based on the writings of Jonathan Edwards. And what they were after and what I am after in this book is helping, especially Christians see, that though we may have heard that Edwards is a hellfire preacher, Edwards is actually a nearly peerless spiritual encourager. And by that term, encourager, I don't mean it in the trite, shallow way, you know, just a mere quick smile and pat on the back. Edwardsian encouragement is about as high horsepower as you can get in theological and spiritual terms. Edwards grounds, in other words, his encouragement to his daughter, as he does throughout his ministry, his writings, etc., in deep theology and sound doctrine. So when Edwards is writing his little girl Esther, as we're talking about here, he doesn't merely say, hey, it's going to be okay. Things are going to get better. You know, just, just have confidence that tomorrow's going to be a better day. And, you know, when you, wake out of, when you get up and, and, and wake up and get out of bed tomorrow morning, just make sure you plaster a smile on your face because, hey, think positively and, you know, good things will happen when you do. That is exactly what Jonathan Edwards does not say. He grounds, rather, his encouragement that he offers his daughter navigating the wilds of a fallen world with little kids Uh, herself battling illness, and illness will in fact claim Esther's life not too many years from the time of this letter, 1753, Edwards grounds this encouragement in the the greatness of God, in the grace of God, in the mercy of God. He he encourages his little girl to see what he trained her to see from an early age, that the Christian, as John 10, 27, 28 teaches us, never can be snatched from the hand of God. We are always in God's hands if we are in Christ. It is, it is literally the case that no one can take us out of the hands of God. Satan cannot take us out of the hands of God. We cannot take ourselves out of the hands of God. Our enemies and foes in this life cannot take us out of the hands of God. The government cannot take us out of the hands of God. No one can. It is impossible to do so. It is an iron certainty of this universe that if you are in Christ. You cannot be outside of Christ. That, that is very much what Edwards was after when he wrote that potent, eloquent phrase to his daughter Esther. You are always in God's hands. It's a poignant phrase, isn't it? Because Edwards, as a loving father, knew that he could not keep his little girl in his hands. How much does a godly father or mother wish to protect their child, whatever age that child might be. That's exactly, isn't it, what we do as fathers and mothers. And, and to think for just a moment of fathers here, it's exactly what a father tries to do. He tries to protect his family. He tries to use his hands for the good of his children. If if someone would come and try to do something terrible to his children at you know the local park or something or sidewalk, what is that father, that godly father, going to do? He's not going to passively stand by and let an evil person take his children away out of some misconceived pacifistic Christianity. That father is going to do everything within his power to protect his children, his wife. He's going to use his hands. If necessary, he's going to enact violence even to protect his family, his wife. His children? How much more so does our Heavenly Father, often eclipsed in our Christian systems of doctrine, how much more does our Heavenly Father care for us and keep us and protect us and encourage us through the recognition of this truth? That's how Jonathan Edwards framed his encouragement to his little girl. He did not first and foremost comfort her in her time of illness and need by focusing on himself, though he was a godly father. No, you see, Edwards recognized that he had profound limitations. Edwards knew that he was a contingent being where God is an independent being. God has existence in himself where you and I, uh, however gifted or not gifted, only have existence because God has granted it to us. Edwards knew. He knew this, again, this poignant fact that every father or mother must confront, that he could not, in point of fact, keep his daughter in his hands. In other words, he could not comprehensively protect her and shield her and comfort her. He could not, his strength would fail. And indeed, in just five years time from the date of this letter, 1753, Edwards would himself die in 1758. So Edwards, in commending his daughter to the care of God, is not only counseling Esther, from the recognition of the very identity of the divine being, that only God can protect his chosen, Edwards is also signaling his limitations as a father, as a man, as a human being, and telling his little girl that she must not find comfort in him. This is not to say, of course, in the Edwardsian mind or in my own, that a father should not do everything he can in his earthly power to protect and bless and help his children, whether they are tiny or whether they are grown. That is what a godly father does. It is to say, however, that the strength of every earthly father, every Christian father as well, is going to ebb. It's going to wane. It's going to wax away. And that is why, as fathers, we must be so careful, so diligent, even so vigilant, to train our children to see that they must trust, not ultimately in us, though we want them to love us and find great security and hope and comfort in us, but they must ultimately trust only in God. They must trust ultimately only in God the Father, who unites us to himself through God the Son. And then we are indwelt by God the Spirit for all our days. It is my hope that in picking up Always in God's Hands, a collection of 365 devotions, one for each day of the year, that you will yourself be encouraged by Jonathan Edwards's sermons, writings, letters, and other material, that you will be strengthened to stand in a fallen world for the glory of God and the honor of Christ. That is the ultimate goal of this book, even as that was the ultimate goal of Edwards' letter to his struggling little girl so many years ago. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest-growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging Word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today.